0: open with me to Genesis chapter 10, and we begin a new book study, not only in a chapter, but in a new section of Genesis. We've completed our study of Noah, and now we turn our attention to the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so very quickly, I'm going to read with you Genesis 10, 1-5, and then have quite a bit of introduction to get into before we actually look at what these verses will say to us today. So as you can see, we're only going to cover these first five verses today. So here's what it says to us. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai and Javan and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tychon. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now, I've repeatedly said this throughout our study of Genesis, and it continues to be true, most especially in chapter 10, and then in 11, I cannot say everything that should be said or could be said about this section in Genesis. There's just way too much information here. And so as we begin our study of chapter 10, which is almost entirely genealogical information, for the average reader, these genealogies are some of the most uninteresting sections of Scripture to read. I remember as a young Christian It was often joked that if you're having a difficult time falling asleep, just open the book of Chronicles and begin reading the genealogies, and soon you'll be so tired that you're just going to have to fall asleep. Well, that kind kind of is the way we approach genealogies. We look at it as a lot of unimportant and uninspiring information but in reality they are very important and this one in particular has significant importance for the nation of Israel for Christians as we study the history of Israel and so the first thing that we notice here in verse 1 is these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and sons were born to them after the flood. So this signifies the beginning of a new section in Genesis, the generations of the records, uh, or the records of the generations of the Hebrew word toledot, and that indicates we're in a new section, a new book within the 50 chapters of Genesis. We also will see here in verse 1 that it mentions the names of Noah's three sons and then the sons born to them. After the flood, maintaining consistency with what we read about the boarding of the ark, just being Noah, his wife, the three sons, and their wives. And so all of the genealogy that is going to be laid out for us in chapter 10 is a result of what takes place in the new world after the flood water subsides when the three sons are faithful to fulfill the command of God to be fruitful and to multiply. And so this is, in effect, what they have done. They have been fruitful and they have multiplied, and this is what we begin to look at. So this new book that deals with the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This book will take us through chapter 11, verse 9 which concludes with the account at the Tower of Babel. And then chapter 11, verse 10, will begin the sixth book, and Moses will provide a more detailed look at the generations of Shem, one of the three sons, and it is the only one of the three that any special attention is given to. Now, there's a lot of introduction that we need to look at as we get into this genealogy. And there's six points that I'm going to make, and there really could be more than six. And what I will say in each of these six points could actually be significantly longer than what I am about to provide to you today. So as we look at the sons of Noah... The first thing that we're going to see that is important is this. Moses is not concerned with providing an exhaustive genealogy. This is a selective genealogy. Meaning, Moses did not identify every one of the sons that came from Shem, Ham, Japheth, and the grandsons that come from these three individuals as that ancestral line gets woven out into many, many different layers. So what this genealogy is going to do, it is selectively going to highlight the most important people which directly influence the nation of Israel. Now, this was true of the earlier genealogies that we've looked at so far As we looked at the genealogy of Cain and then especially the genealogy of Seth, each of these were selective and they were not exhaustive. So a lot of times people look at this as a literal genealogy indicating the only people that were born. And they say, how in the world could the population have ever exploded to the numbers that we know were part of this period in history with just these individuals being listed? Well, as we go through this, we'll see that many sons and daughter, many other sons and daughters were born to them, and they're just not listed for us. <clears throat> the second important point that we have here is that Moses is concerned with providing a picture for modern Israel. Now, as they are on the verge of entering into the promised land, Moses is painting a picture of what modern Israel is going to experience even though he's writing that all the way back immediately after the days of the Flood. Before, well after the children had been born to Ham, Shem, and Japheth, but writing it in such a way that it's still a part of that period in history. So if Moses did write this during the wilderness wanderings, as many assume he did, then he is painting an ethnic, national, geographical, and political picture for Israel as they are on the verge of entering into the promised land under the leadership of no- excuse me, under the leadership of Joshua. Thirdly, Moses is concerned with it, with it connecting the promise of God as verbalized in Genesis 3.15. Now, if you remember, after the fall, God hands down a curse to the serpent. Man will come under the curse of the land. "...and in the curse handed down to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." So, Moses is connecting the promise that was given in Genesis 3.15 to the nation of Israel, and he's making a connection to that promise to the nation of Israel... as they are on the verge of entering into the promised land. Now this promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ... but... this promise flows... through the nation of Israel... to whom God gave covenants... and made promises... and adopted as His own people... to whom God gave the law... Whom God, to whom God gave the scriptures, to whom God gave the ministry of proclamation of evangelism to bring these other, these other ethnic geographical peoples under the promises and the covenants of God. So the promise made in Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in Christ. It flows through the nation of Israel. And what Moses is going to do is he's going to connect 315 to the nation of Israel through Abraham, who we are going to learn about in Genesis chapter 12. So this is a very calculated way of connecting ancient history to the modern People of Israel as they are on the verge of entering into the promised land. So Moses is going to fill in a lot of the blanks, a lot of the gaps. He's going to make sense a lot of what they may not fully understand because the people of Israel on the verge of entering into the promised land had been slaves to the nation of Egypt for 430 years. So what they knew about the promises could be debated, but Moses is going to make it very, very clear as he connects ancient history the origin of the nation of Israel, the promise of Genesis 3.15, fulfilled in Christ, connecting all of that here as what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 10. So the nation of Israel flows from the covenant God will make with Abraham in Genesis 12. And so Moses' purpose here is to track the history of the new world from the descendants of Noah, his three children, to Abraham who will come from the line of Shem, which is why special attention is going to be given to the line of Shem as we begin the sixth book, beginning in 11, chapter 10. That might sound kind of confusing, hopefully not. So the fourth point that we're looking at here in this introduction is this is not in chronological order. Now this isn't very obvious to us as we read through Genesis 10 and 11 through 9 with the Tower of Babel. Chapter 10 is called the Table of Nations. And these nations are established after the events of the Tower of Babel. So what you have at the Tower of Babel is you have all the people are together. They speak a single language. And in response to what it is they're trying to do, God will scatter them all over the world. And this creates the table of nations or the neighbors that Israel is going to have once they enter into the promised land. So at the conclusion of the Tower of Babel, we read this. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So the Tower of Babel came first and then as the people scattered, They set up for themselves their own nation. It is in these that we find the ethnic, regional, geographical, and political nations that are now identified here in Genesis 10 as the table of nations. So this scattering of people took place over hundreds of years. And these nations were eventually established. Now, finding a precise date for this table is widely disputed because not all of Israel's neighbors are mentioned. There are pieces in Scripture where it's very difficult to identify a precise timeline. The best we can do is generalities. Now, my scholarly friend Greg Fliegel was talking about how long did it take for Adam and Eve to fall in the garden? He says, well, I think it's 15 minutes, but we don't really know, do we? It could have been a week, it could have been a month, it could have been a year, we really don't know. So we don't really know how much time specifically has passed from the day that Noah and his family left the ark And then the table of nations is defined for us in a way that it is expressed here in Genesis 10. It is likely hundreds of years, and some try to pigeonhole it into an exact time, and it's really difficult to do that. But by most estimates, it's going to be around 600 years. But we can't really say this is the number of years that has passed. Now again, Moses' purpose is not to provide a detailed narrative but one that prepares the Israel of Moses' day to understand the world that they are about to enter into. The fifth point that we need to understand as we go through this is this. There is a common ancestry that is being highlighted here. Whether it's Moses' intent or not, it is in fact a reality. All of humanity traces its ancestry to the three sons of Noah. Every single one. Noah's ancestry is traced all the way back to Adam. And so we are connected to Adam through Noah and through his three sons. I believe that Moses does this through the inspiration of the Scripture to recognize... That Yahweh is the God of all peoples, even though they don't recognize Him as such, or they may call God by a different name. All people are united to one another both by their ancestry and by their responsibility to Creator God. At the same time, all the world's people are divided by geography and language and ethnicity and culture, and most of all, by their fallenness and their sin, which separates them both from God and each other. Now, the effect of sin and our fallenness is realized in these nations, which share a common ancestry, which eventually... Where, where eventually we will find these nations warring against each other. And committing brutal atrocities against each other, even though they have this common ancestry traced back through the sons of Noah. Well, how can that be? Doesn't it sound like a most ridiculous thing to war against your own ancestors? Well, look no further than in our own country when just 160 years ago, we were warring against one another over differing ideologies. There's a common Savior that is highlighted here as a part of this introduction, traced all the way back to Genesis 3.15. All people find their connection with God through His plan and purpose, and this plan and purpose flows through the nation of Israel, fulfilled in the cross of Christ. So all peoples are ancestry related. All peoples are responsible to the same God. and this is a part of what is woven into this piece of ancient history that our history books really can't tell us about. The Apostle Paul said in his testimony, before the Arab, I always botched this up, Arap- Arap- Gopagus, Arab. Eripagius, Eripagius, there we go, I'll go with that. (laughs) It's a Greek, it's a Grecian council. I should have alliterated that in my, in my notes so I wouldn't botch it. But this is what Paul said. It's called a sermon on Mars Hill when he stood before the Grecian authorities. And this is what he said in Acts chapter 17. He made, he God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So what Paul understood and what Moses is laying out for the people of Israel of his day is a common ancestry traced through the sons of Noah back to Adam through the creation of God a common connection to God and the promise given in Genesis 3.15 and what Paul would say is all of this is connected through the cross of Christ. Now, Moses couldn't say that because he didn't yet know that. But we know that as we look back through Israel's history, what has been prophesied and promised and what has been fulfilled and what, we, and what we know now. So imagine the shock and the horror when people who hate Israel and its God, people who hate Christians and their God, stand before that God and give an account of their life. Can you imagine? There are countless religions, there are countless idols whom people follow faithfully, rigorously, who hate Israel and its God, who hate Christians and our God, who are going to stand before that God and say, "Uh uh-oh. God gave to Israel, God gave to Christians, the ministry of proclamation to share the truth about this common ancestry and this common responsibility before Creator God. So here in the table of nations, 70 nations are listed. Now, certainly there are more nations at this time. Again, Moses uh purpose is not to be exhaustive in identifying every single one of them but these 70 nations are a multiple of 10 and 7 indicating completeness And while this isn't exhaustive, it provides a picture of ethnic, political, and the geographical world that Israel is about to enter into when they go into the Promised Land, the land of the Canaanites. It becomes clear as we get to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 that sin is alive and well. There is rebellion against God. There is rejection of Him. And when these nations that we see listed here are eventually established... Most are established with a rebellion and a rejection of God. This is the world Israel is going to enter into. This is why Israel and Christians were instructed to tell others about God. Because apart from Him, their eternity is pain and torment because they have rejected the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Christian... And this is what Moses is pointing out to us. Now, before we get into chapter 10, remember that when, uh, when Noah awoke from his drunken stupor, passed out in his tent naked, Ham came in, exposed him in his moment of shame, rather than protecting his father, Noah prayed a prayer that was prophetically fulfilled and is now realized here in the Table of Nations some 600 or so years later. He prayed a prayer of blessing primarily over Shem, a blessing that included Japheth, and then a curse on Canaan, the fourth son from Ham, who would then be relegated to eventual servitude, servitude to his brothers. So the genealogy of Moses provides is in reverse order of how the sons are always listed. They are listed as Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but the genealogies begin with Japheth. So we look now at the first son, that is the son of Japheth. Verses 2 through 4 list the names. And then verse 5, which we're going to look at in just a moment, will list the summary. So the sons of Japheth and the grandsons. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshesh and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Ketim and Dodanim. Now, Japheth is the father of what is called the Indo-European nations. Well, okay, that doesn't really mean a lot to me. So he's the father of the Indo-European nations, which encompasses Europe across the northern section of Israel, sweeping toward India. While this seems unimportant, it is actually quite interesting. We're going to look at a map in just a moment. But this is where this is incredibly important, and Eugene will especially enjoy this because Eugene is a language buff, and Eugene has taught himself Greek and is teaching himself Hebrew, and he knows German and Russian and a bunch of other really geeky language stuff, so he's going to really, really like this. The rest of us may not really be as interested in it as he will be, but it is still very important, and I hope you'll catch that as we go through this. So for centuries, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, people could not make any connection between the Eastern languages and the Western languages. But in the 19th century, as scholarship was advanced, they made that connection. One of the earliest languages that is the the base of of both Eastern and Western languages is a language that has been extinct for a very long time, and it is called Sanskrit. You've probably heard of that, but you really don't know much about that. This ancient language, language called Sanskrit... Sanskrit is a common base of both Eastern and Western languages. Linguistic students, even in modern times, go to India to study Sanskrit because it is the closest language to this entire range of languages found in the East and in the West. Now, why is that important? Let me share with you why. Now, this is a very lengthy cut and paste from Webster's new collegiate dictionary which does not recognize biblical history so this is where it's really important here's what the new collegiate Webster's new collegiate dictionary says quote the indo-european languages are the most important linguistic family of of the globe, comprising the chief languages of Europe, together with the Indo-Iranian and other Asiatic tongues. In the 19th century, comparative and historical study of these languages, called also Indo-Germanic or Aryan languages, established their descent from a common ancestor. Hang on to that. This language sourced probably in Eastern Europe by a people or group of people unknown, perhaps a mixed race. Now pause. They don't recognize biblical history, so they have no way to connect this common source to anything that would be communicated in the Bible. Continuing in the quote. The prehistoric dialects of the primitive Indo-Europeans... Table of Nations, chapter 6, accompanied their migrations to India, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the western borders of Europe, where they are found at the beginning of history. So because secular peoples, like Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, don't recognize biblical history, there is this unknown, there's this unknown period of primitive history where there's just massive gaps that can't be filled in. Hang on to that. This family of languages is divided into two types. The eastern languages involving the languages of India, Afghanistan, Iran, Armenia, Armenia, the Balkans, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Russia, Czechoslovakia, Poland, parts of Germany, East Prussia, Lithuania, and Latvia. All those Eastern languages. And the le- and the Western division of the languages, the languages of Greece, Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, Switzerland, Romania, Cornwall, Wales, Brittany, Ireland, Scotland, Scandinavia, parts of Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, and England. There's a common core in all the Eastern languages and all the Western languages. And because they don't recognize... The biblical history that is painted for us, they don't really know how this came about or where this came from. Continuing the quote, Webster's Dictionary understands that the languages of Europe and languages into India are all coming from the same source. And that source is found right here in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. It's fascinating to think when you hear someone speak an Eastern language, like... I I don't know if it would be correct to say that. There's a lot of confusion about Japan and how that all got an Eastern language that you and I would go, where in the world did that come from? It uh, sounds like nothing I've ever heard before. You take that language and you say, how's that connect the, to the Western languages? For hundreds and hundreds of years they found no connection. And then they did, there's a common source, the closest thing they can identify to it to it being a Sanskrit, and all of that comes from a common language that was spoken and reported to us here in Genesis 10 and 11 at the Tower of Babel when Everyone spoke the same language and God said, no longer, I'm going to scatter you all over the earth and they took this root source of language and then they went out and they made it their own and here we are in 20... In twenty one, excuse me, 2024, understanding that all of these languages have a common source found here in Genesis 10 and 11. It gives incredible validity to the narrative that we look at here in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. Almost all languages find their origin in a common source. Who would have thunk it? So verses 2 lists the seven sons of Japheth. Now most believe that this is a selective genealogy and it's related to the fact that much of the line of Japheth, the father of the Indo-European nations, had little to do with Israel's history as they were considered to be on the outskirts of civilization far away from Israel. So here's a map, and I don't know how much of that you can see. Probably not enough. So Japheth is in the green. So you see these green names here, Javan, Tyrus, Gomer, Tomer, uh, Tubal, Meshesh, Ashkenaz. You see Gomer up here. You see Magog. You see the descendants of Gomer and Japhon. There's a little bit of overlap here in this um, Middle Eastern region. But this shows you a picture of where the father of the Indo-European Areas primarily inhabited and that was really very very far away from Israel. So the sons of Defeth were Gomer, they went north in the Black Sea area and even beyond it later they expanded into Europe settling in France called Gauls and Spain called Galicia in Britain called Celts or Celts even in Wales called Simru it's hard to know where Magog is. Almost all interpreters of history would say it's to the far north, and so this is a people of the north. Josephus identifies Magog as the place where the people of Gog lived around the Caspian Sea. That's the region of southern Russia or Ukraine. Madai is a common term in the Old Testament referring to the Medes who inhabited the region northeast of the Tigris River, modern northwest Iran. Javan, as you look at the map again, Javan being up here, much of Europe, refers to the Ionian Greeks who settled southern Greece and western Asia. The sons named Tubal and Meshesh were called the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the people to the north. The Jews feared the Assyrians who were coming down from the north. And then verses 3-4 through four list the grandsons of only two of the seven sons. And the reason that only these two lines are broken out in any way is likely because they went farther away. And were almost unknown to the Israelite people in the day that they would enter into the promised land. So the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphath and Tobamah. The descendants of Ashkenaz are usually identified as the Scythians or the Scythians. The term occurs in Jeremiah 51-27, where it's associated with northern tribes. The Scythians were tribes from the Russian steeps that occupied areas north and east of the Black Sea. Rifath is basically unknown. There's a lot of speculation about where that could be. But Togomar has a very direct connection to Armenia. And then we read here in verse 5 as a summary. From these the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands... Everyone according to his language, according to their families, and to their nation. So this verse 5 here, let me go back to the order of creation when God created, or God uh, when God created of like kind, not identifying every single piece of creation. So here's what we have. If you have the descendants of Jovan who primarily primarily settled these coastlands in this area. You would see how after they have settled that area and moved to the coastlands that they continue to go beyond and multiply. So these peoples continue to move and migrate and mix. And created much of the world that we know today. It is believed that from the line of Japheth came the maritime peoples. You know what that means, right? Peoples who spread and settled the coasts and then sailed to settle other areas on other coastlines, especially around the Mediterranean and then eventually beyond as the ability to sail further was realized. So those of us who come from European stock most likely come from Japheth. Our forefathers in Europe were the descendants of Japheth. Those who come from Russia, even those who come across into Persia and India, are from this same line. It is believed that people migrating across Russia, the sons of Japheth, very possibly came all the way to the Bering Strait, very eastern part of Russia, the very western part of North America, where modern day Alaska sits, they came down on that land, what do you call the land path, into the Bering Straits, down into the North American continent, and then eventually into the South American continent. Where else would they come from? The ability to sail across the vast oceans like the Atlantic or the Pacific would be unheard of in that day. And so it is almost guaranteed that Those that settled, North America and South America, traveled through Russia down into those continents. Now, there's a lot of speculation about the singular mass of our world that is defined for us in the initial act of creation, and the impact of what happened to that singular mass during the flood. Continental drift when the continents began to separate. Did that all happen... After the flood, did God do something with the continents around the time of the Tower of Babel so that these lands would separate themselves and the peoples would not be in one singular place? A lot of speculation. It really can't be said with absolute precision what actually took place. But all of the people who inhabit the earth today came from the same three sons. The one most difficult to explain would be Australia that had to break off somewhere around Asia at some point, but already had people on it. So there's a lot that we don't know. So all of the people who settled in North America and South America were probably from the same Indo-European descent. They came from Noah's family. The Native Americans who were in North America were likely from Europeans. Let me redo this. Those that were Native Americans are connected to the Europeans who are connected to these Native Americans and their ancestry both in North America and South America. So Native Americans comprising North America and South America most probably came from the line of Japheth as they settled the coastlands and went beyond that. Now I'm going to stop here for two reasons. It's information overload. My brain hurts. I mean, I can imagine that many of you are going like, let's get on to something that I can really understand and connect to. But I need to pause here because it is information overload and I don't want to run through Ham and Shem because these two lines have a lot have a lot more of a direct impact on the nation of Israel, especially as we look at Ham and the enemies of Israel and then eventually through Shem and the one from whom Abraham will come, the one from whom the covenant will be given, the one to whom the nation of Israel can be identified with. So it's important to deal with each of these responsibly, and I I don't want to uh, run through those too quickly and miss the importance of that. So here's what I believe we can take away from this. All peoples trace their ancestry through the sons of Noah. All of us. And even though our skin colors are different, we still find a common ancestry in those three individuals. That ancestry is tracked all the way back through Adam Promise as a result of the curse of the fall of man, where there is a singular common God and a singular common Savior who has provided for the fallenness of man, that all the peoples of the world need, regardless of their regional, linguistic, ethnic, cultural, religious differences. All goes traced back to one the one that you and I know, the one that you and I love, the one that you and I worship.